Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. It is good to see everyone. You made it out in the cold, the Arctic blast. And I am proud of you uh, and proud of myself. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The wildly popular book of Ecclesiastes. He says, ironically, so really, there's three or four verses or passages that get quoted from Ecclesiastes and the rest of us more or less ignore it. And there are more or less a handful of reasons why we kind of tend to ignore this book. But I was thinking to myself, a few years ago, I preached through the book of Lamentations, which is, if not the, one of the like saddest, most depressing books of the Bible. And I thought, why not go for number two? And here we are in Ecclesiastes. Uh, one of the most, most basic tasks that every human being has, has been given, is to search for and to find a reason to live. To, to look for and examine and, and really grasp onto a reason to keep going uh, when things get tough, to, to figure out what gives our life meaning. Um, without this, without a sense of purpose, reason, motivation, meaning, um, you have human beings who are very unmotivated, very unhappy, very unhealthy. Uh, surely you know of people, and, and most likely at one point in your life, this characterized you, maybe even right now. Um, you have this lack of meaning, this lack of purpose in your life, and it's hard to get up in the morning. It's hard to do things or to do things well. Uh, it's hard to um, feel joy. It's hard to keep going. It's hard to serve other people. Um, most of the time, on this journey towards meaning, um, human beings make some common mistakes. Um, I think there are three that are the most common mistakes that human beings make. The first is that we, we place meaning in all the wrong things. Uh, and so we look at this or that, this person or that person, this experience or that experience, and we think that will add value to my life. That's a reason for working and getting some money. That's a reason for um, building my family. That's a reason for doing the things that I do. And then we get there, it doesn't satisfy us, and we just start again. And it's kind of this rat race that goes on and on and on and on. Another common mistake is to place meaning in the wrong thing and then actually never figure out that it was the wrong thing. Uh, to either through deception uh, or through you know, not being honest with yourself to say, no, nope, this is the thing. Or maybe the goal is so off into the future um, that you'll never reach it, or that when you reach it, it'll be at the very end of, of your life. Um, and then the, the last uh, tragic error that gets made is sometimes human beings um, come up empty. Sometimes that search happens, and there's, there's no answer that's found. Um, there, there is no purpose. There is no meaning um, that's able to be deduced for, for certain individuals. Now, if you've ever made any of these mistakes, I think we all have. I know certainly I have. Then Ecclesiastes is the book for you. Uh, Ecclesiastes is going to be our conversation partner through a discussion of meaning and uh, the purpose of life and how we might uh, understand some very complex and distressing things about life. So um, Ecclesiastes 1 will begin 
Um, we're going to read a couple of verses, talk, read a couple of verses, talk, uh, and we'll do like that this morning. So if you'll read me in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Could be translated, might be understood as meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. So immediately we might have a couple of questions. Like first, who hurts you? Okay, what went wrong? In your life, this guy seems like he needs a really good hug and even better therapy. Um, uh, Ecclesiastes doesn't start slow. There's no easing into the topic. It kind of slaps you in the face as soon as you open up the, the pages. And uh, from right at the beginning, there's no mystery about what this book is about. What you have in verse 2 is a summary of the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. So we need to buckle up. Because we're in for 12 chapters of an unrelenting attack um, about why everything is meaningless. This is not the beginning of a journey where he then concludes later on, like, how much I've grown. Look, look how far we've all grown. Um, this is what he is going to be getting at um, throughout the message. You'll notice that the preacher, as it's translated, is spoken of in the third person. There is a narrator in Ecclesiastes. And he speaks from verse 1 through 11 in chapter 1. And then the preacher himself speaks for about 12 chapters. And at the very end of the book, in, in verse 9 of chapter 12 through the end, verse 14, the narrator returns. It seems like the narrator is the one who is kind of putting this book together to present the teachings to us. And the narrator at the end evaluates um, what uh, the, the preacher has said and, and gives some advice of his own. This will be important as we look to interpret and understand what, what Ecclesiastes is trying to get at. Um, now, this, this preacher man that is mentioned here, um, the Hebrew word here is kohelet. It could be translated as preacher. It could be translated as teacher. It could be translated as sage, like this wise person giving out advice. Um, he is identified as a king. In Jerusalem, the son of David, he, he takes on and will take on for himself kind of a royal identity that seems to be Solomon. Now, he never claims to be Solomon so explicitly. There are lots of good reasons for thinking this was written and finalized well after the time of Solomon. Um, but it was a literary device used pretty commonly in the ancient world. It's kind of like fictional autobiography. And, and whatever, um, the, whoever this man is, he certainly, if not is Solomon, he's taking on the identity of Solomon and taking it for a stroll as a thought process about the different things that he wants to question and address and mull over in his mind. Um, now, because people disagree on the translation of uh, Kohelet, um, and I've never known anything otherwise, people in the biblical uh, scholar community, theology community, just call this man Kohelet and take out the translation altogether. And so I won't even actually be able to help myself from doing that. And so um, say this with me as we go through Ecclesiastes, we start this journey. Kohelet. Kohelet. Hebrew scholars, all of you already. Um, Kohelet. We get Kohelet's message in the form of the narrator. He summarizes it to us, and it's this verse 2 here. Vanity of vanities, says Kohelet. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word used here for vanity is the Hebrew word havel. Say that, havel. 
It'll occur over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's probably one of the keys to understanding what Ecclesiastes is getting to. And if you open up different English translations, what you'll find is different people have interpreted this word in different ways. Some translations will actually interpret the same word in different ways in the same book over the 30 occurrences. Havel is, at its most simplest, a basic metaphor. Havel is the Hebrew word for vapor or mist. Think about breathing out on a cold day. And you go to grasp at it, and then it's gone. It communicates a sense of temporality, right? It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. It communicates the sense of unsubstance to it. There's not anything there. There's nothing to grasp onto. There's no value added. There's nothing left over. This, this vapor. Um, and, and it can be translated vanity. It can be translated meaningless. Um, all of these get at the, the problem, the conclusion that the Colette is, is striving for um, as he uh, says this. Now, we shouldn't, I think, read this conclusion, the statement, uh, summary, as like an academic observation. I don't think Colette is or will be saying this like a clinical therapist from a distance, an academic distance, right? Like, I've researched all the data. I have the studies if you want to read them. But here's the conclusion. Havel. Just a lot of Havel. This is, I think, a cry. This is a man who is in a crisis. This is a man who is uh, in a place where he has serious questions about his world, about the God who created that world, and about his actions and interactions in that world. Um, He is, at the beginning, we should um, pay attention to, this is not a secular person. This is an Israelite speaking. So sometimes we can misinterpret the book of Ecclesiastes by um, trying to pretend that this is simply what a person who doesn't know God says. And that's not the case. I mean, it's very clearly not the case. This is an Israelite who has noticed that his observations and experiences don't match up with what he thought he should have expected from God and the world God had created. He has a problem with God, a big one. And he's going to tell us all about it as we read. Um, Now, I think you and I can agree that there are large portions of our life that seem meaningless, that seem like Havel, that seem like nothing more than vapor. Um, Whether that's certain meetings that are called at your workplace, um, certain chores at or around your house, um, certain periods of life um, where you just look back and you're like, yeah, that, that didn't really serve a point, right? I just kind of had to do it for some reason I don't understand or care to understand, and it is just kind of meaningless. Here's where Colette, though, pushes the envelope. He doesn't just say, yeah, that stuff is meaningless. He very clearly says, all is Havel. Everything is Havel. If you're thinking of it, it's Havel. It's worth nothing. It results in nothing. It does not last. So you might say, well, Colette, what about, what about like our family? Havel. What about work? Havel. What about pleasure, entertainment, good times? Just Havel. It's all Havel. Nothing but Havel in the world for us. Now, as we go about interpreting Ecclesiastes, there are a lot of questions that we have to ask ourselves. Um, is this man, Coelette, is he a stark realist or is he merely faithless? Is he 
orthodox? Does he have the right beliefs? Or is he heterodox? Is he thinking wrong things? Is he an optimist or a pessimist? Now, you might wonder, like, I don't think I'll make the mistake of thinking this guy's an optimist. But there are a handful of carpe diem passages in Ecclesiastes. These are the ones that usually get quoted the most. Um, that could be interpreted, although not necessarily, as optimistic. Is the ultimate message of Ecclesiastes, be like this guy, be like Colette, he's a wise man. These thoughts are true, think after him. Or is it, look, this is wrong. Here's a negative example of what you should think. Don't fall into his trap. Um, The only thing I think that we know for sure is that this book was written on a Monday. Okay, this is the start of a new week. Same old, same old. He's not happy about it. He's not feeling it. Everything is meaningless. Um, Now, it's going to be our reflex as we read Ecclesiastes to question his judgments. Immediately, some of us might be like, look, everything's meaningless. I don't know about that. Hopefully, some of us at least are, right? We don't have just a room full of people in existential depression. It's going to be our question at times, uh, our reflex to question his emotional stability. Um, But I think it's important for us, as we read Ecclesiastes, to adopt this posture. um, To come into this conversation as participants, as partners, and not as judges. There's a reason it's in our Bible. There's a reason it was written. We'll talk about this and we'll see it. The frame narrator, which is what the narrator is called, he frames the story at the beginning and the end. At the very end, he gives an evaluation of Colette's message. And he does not say this was all wrong. He basically, there's a little more there, but he basically affirms Colette's wisdom, Colette's message. You might wonder, too, if he wasn't going to do that, why he would compose 12 chapters put all this together, right? Just to say, forget about it. It's not worth anything. Then further, we'd have to wonder, why did it come into our scriptures? If there's not something really there for us to wonder about, for us to at least question, I don't think we should or are expected to or are wise in completely shoving aside his assumptions, his conclusions, his message without walking down the path with him. So, let's keep reading. Why is everything meaningless? Verse 3 starts the answer with a question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is a rhetorical question. He thinks the answer is nothing. You get nothing, nada, zero, zilch. Three terms in in verse 3 are going to be really important, again, throughout the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Toil, gain, and this phrase, under the sun. Now, by toil, he, he really just means labor, right? What we occupy ourselves with um, during, during our lives. Um, by gain, he, he means profit. This is actually a very specific economical word. It comes from the, the world of economics. This is a business term. He um, means basically surplus. What do you have left over after you do all the cute little things you do during your life? And he, again, says you have nothing. It adds nothing. Everything that you've done, everything you'll experience, everything you build or attempt to build, it will all be nothing. And then this phrase, under the sun. Now, we've got to be careful about this phrase, under the sun. For some people, they mistakenly, I think, read this phrase to indicate that there's a hint being given to us. We already know what's wrong with Kohelet at this point. Because 
the problem is he's only looking under the sun. If he'd look right above it, or maybe like in the heavens, he would consider God and God's perspective and things like that. Now again, this is a man who is not having a problem just because he has forgotten about God. His problem actually is God. Now he, he might be faithless, that's maybe fair enough, but it's not that he is somehow removing God from all of his equations. No, God's in the equations. And that is kind of what makes it that bad. Um, Under the Sun has an ancient parallel um, in different texts um, that seems to always indicate the realm of the living. The opposite of it would be like the nether, nether world, the, the land of the dead. Um, it is intended for us in Ecclesiastes not to restrict his view, to say like if only there were more places he could have looked, it's actually intended the opposite. It's to say his gaze has been everywhere. He's looked at it all. He's experienced all of these things. There's not a stone that's been unturned. There's not a corner that hasn't been peeked around. There's not a door that hasn't been opened. He, he has looked at it all. And he asks us this question, what, what's left over? What's surplus? If your life is a business, what's the profit of it? He's, he's going to say no. Verse 4, he'll start to expand with some analogies. He says, A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens. Or actually, the word here is pants back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Now, Colette is unaware of Hurricane Harvey and the fact that those rivers were full, okay? And they, they got too full. Um, he continues, all things, he says, are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. He, he gives us here some analogies from nature and analogies from human activity, to, to get to the point that he's getting. The point that really he's getting is that life is a treadmill. It's like a, a guy at a gym running on a treadmill. At the end of that 40 minutes or 20 minutes or five minutes of running, maybe it's walking, but he's on this treadmill. At the end of it, he turns it off, and where has he gone? Nowhere. He's put forth a lot of effort. He's a little stinkier than he was when he started. He's a little sweatier than he was when he started. His heart rate might be up a little bit more, but nothing has been accomplished. Ecclesiastes is going to say to us that perhaps life is a lot more like Groundhog Day than any of us would ever admit. We wake up, we do the same thing, and we go to sleep to do it over again. And when we catch glimpses that this is the same thing happening over again, we do tests, right? We'll go try to do something new to find something valuable there. And, and we'll maybe have a new hobby or habit for a few months, or a few years, and, and then we'll move on to this or that. But it's all the same. It goes around and around and around. He says, just like the sun, just like the wind, just like the rivers, there's no point to it. It's circular. It's a treadmill. It's just the sun goes up, and then it goes in this circle, and then it goes, it pants its way back right to the beginning. And his point of the generations come and generations go, but this all remains forever, is that the sun was doing its thing before we were here. And we'll be here, and we'll leave here, and the sun will still be doing the same thing. 
it seems pretty fruitless for the sun and even more so for us. Same with the wind, same with the rivers. Now, this is actually opposite of what you find in other places in the Old Testament. In a lot of places in the Old Testament, the stability or order of nature is held up as something that reflects God's goodness and God's wisdom. Here, though, Colette sees it as just proving what he already knew to be the case, which is the entire created arena is all one big lesson in futility. So it says there's this wariness to it, and then he gives us human activities. He says, a man cannot utter it. He's talking about speaking. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Um, again, he's getting at this, this treadmill point. Um, we could say it like this. Uh, speaking, seeing, and hearing all have the same results as the sun and the wind and the rivers. They're never done. They're never satisfied. They don't really ever come out on top, amount to something significant. Um, they're never full because the cycle never ceases. Um, have you yet gotten to that point in your life where you're like, I've said everything that needs to be said. I'm satisfied. No, it's kind of a, I certainly haven't. <laughs> Maybe you wish I had. <laughs> yeah, it's about 20 minutes ago. Um, or, or have you seen enough things where you can be like, I can retire my eyes. That's what they were here for, and I've got it. I've heard enough things. Certainly you've thought this, right? I've heard enough from you. That's all I need. But in life, no, these, these things never reach an end. There's never this grand conclusion where we can step back and go, yeah, that's what it was about. That's what it was for. It's all one big, big treadmill. And we often pretend that our lives aren't in this predictable rut. But Colette anticipates that we'll pretend this, and so he continues in verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. He then maybe gives himself some, some pause here and asks himself, Is there a thing which is said, See, this, this is new? It has been already he concludes, in the ages before us. No, there's, there's really nothing, he says, new under the sun. Now, there's a couple of ways in which this is true, in which he's meaning this. One is that despite our inventiveness and creativity and ability to spin, most of what we experience is largely the same thing that all human beings have ever experienced. Now, there might be some new colors to it, some new trinkets added to it, but before the iPhone, there was the flip phone. Before the flip phone, there was a wired phone. Before the wired phone, there were letters. Again, even farther back. Before letters, people talked to one another. But we've always communicated. And someone will come up with maybe a, a new way to make us think we're doing something new in the future. But we'll still be just talking to each other trying to get our, our thoughts across to one another. The other way I think that he is um, meaning here is that uh, there's nothing new in terms of finding meaning. What we often do or pretend to do is we think that that next thing will be the final thing that is not Havel. Everything's been Havel to this point. 
but I've got this thing out here. When I get that thing, when I experience that, then I will finally have meaning. And surely we have all experienced that this is not the case. At least yet in our lives, right? Who can say for sure in the future, maybe one day it'll work out for you. But surely we've all had that purchase, that car or that house or that trip. And we're like, I can't possibly imagine feeling like I feel now once that happens. Then it happens and it, you know, it may have been fun, maybe cool. Oh, and then, nope, there you are. The story was told of a, a, a man who back in the 80s um, became a doctor and just as he was getting some wealth uh, amounted to him, finally fulfilled his childhood dream of buying a Corvette. And all the, the men in the neighborhood came out and circled around it like an ancient ritual, um, <laughs> sacred tradition. And, and a couple days later, that Corvette was for sale. And, and one of his neighbors was asking him, why are you selling that? You don't realize how many girls, well, okay, you're married. What, this has been your dream. Why, why are you getting rid of it? He's like, all my life, I've wanted this Corvette. And I walked out into my garage a couple days ago. And I go, I have a Corvette. I hadn't changed anything. I hadn't added anything. My life was no less vaporous than it was before that. I can remember years ago, I was um, part of a blog and my goal was to one day get enough reads and views and hits and all that to be able to know and be known by publishers and get free books. And in my mind, as a young academic, right, there's nothing, I mean, that's really the jackpot of life. Where do you go from there? I remember thinking, like, this will, like, really make me feel like I've made it, I've accomplished something. And, you know, slowly but surely, I got started getting being sent free books. And those first few books were really exciting. I was, okay, I saved seventeen ninety nine, uh, $9.59, right? I was calculating up all my surplus from this transaction. And uh, four or five years later, I'm kind of disappointed because I've reached my goal and I'm still me and this is still life. In the Christian publishing world, there's very few companies that I don't have a relationship with and that won't send me whatever book I request for. And they don't even ask that I review it anymore. Every month they just send me a list of books I think will interest me. And they're always right. Um, but what I thought, right, would be this defining moment in my career, in my personal life. It happened. But I'm not sure it really changed anything, right? It, couldn't, it could have not happened and, and more or less, everything would be the same. No big surplus gained from it. Um, there's a saying in recovery that wherever you are, there you are. Right? No change to your circumstances or your job. It's going to actually change you. The things you desire, the things you're tempted by. Um, so, especially in affluent areas, we, we have this tendency to, to look for satisfaction or meaning in our trinkets and our toys and our gadgets and our cars. And the more wealth we have, the more affluence we have, the more ability we have to, to switch things around, to try things out. A new vacation, new car, new house, new wife, new husband, right? whatever you add into the mix there. We go from one thing to another thing, and all of it leaves us looking for something more. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, well, there are some like alpha male types, right, who would challenge 
co-led on this issue. Maybe there's not ever been to this point anything new under the sun, but I, and I alone, will change the known universe. And he's got an answer for that as well in verse 11. He says, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Here's his his main point. Here's really the final nail in the coffin, no pun intended, of why everything is Havel. It's all meaningless. But he says, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what you do or don't do, accomplish or don't accomplish, feel or don't feel, we're all going to die and we'll all be forgotten. This is, for Kohelet, the most foundational fact of human existence, human experience, which really it is. Two things, right, that you can always expect, taxes and, and death. And then to pour salt in that wound, no one's going to remember you. That's a great equalizer. Sure, some people might have more Tingets and, and, and gadgets. And sure, some people might have more, um, you know, more moral or spiritual aspects to their life. But it don't matter. The ground's not going to judge you. All of us. We're all going to die, and then, yeah, you'll be forgotten, like everyone else in history. The truth of death is the truth we like to avoid. We're kind of uncomfortable with it. I think that's a grave mistake. No pun intended. Because I think really one of the, the, the paths of spiritual formation for Christians is learning how to die well. And it begins from the moment we accept Christ into our lives, we begin to follow him. We learn how to die to ourselves, learn how to die to the world, and learn what it means to have been crucified already in Christ. And we are prepared to go into and out through on the other side of, of death. But we avoid it. But for Colette, this is, this is really the end of the matter. This will be a big theme of his throughout the book. Um, doesn't really matter what you can claim. Colette is basically sitting back as maybe a bitter old man. Someone, again, who's in some kind of crisis. He's going, yeah, your life's real cute. And the things that give you, things that make you giggle, they're cute too. And the things that make you happy, they're cute. But guess what? We're both going to the grave. And for those who think, no, my legacy will live on, my memory will live on, which is commonly how humans deal with this issue of death. And he says, no, you'll be forgotten too. We can do an experiment. We've done it before. Raise your hand if you can remember the first and last name of all four of your grandparents. All right. A little bit more than half of us. Impressive. What about great-grandparents? First and last name. All eight. None of us. Shame on you people. <laughs> so I did the math, right? Um, I could get my grandparents, couldn't get my great-grandparents. I made a few phone calls and texts, though, and was able to get, an effort, all of my grand, great-grandparents' names. I think, though, for most people, that's kind of where it starts to get fuzzy. Um, I then asked about getting great-great-grandparents and was told, look, if this is how you're spending your time preparing for a sermon, you have better things to do. You're not getting this by Sunday. So I did the math, and I think it puts us all around like 100 years. 
You die, and then within 100 years, it's a pretty short time, you're forgotten about. And here's the crazy thing. It's not that you're forgotten about by strangers, like the textbooks left out your name. It's your very own family. They exist because of you, and just a handful of years later, they could care less. And then, I mean, to really think through it again, like, all I was asking for was a first and last name. I think if we raised the bar a little bit and was like, well, what did they enjoy doing? What were they like? We'd be like, okay, well, a little bit less, a little less familiar. It's not even that, that we'll just be forgotten by strangers. It's that the very people in our own family, most likely, they won't even know really about us. They might be able to come up with a name if they asked. But in 100 years after I die, no one will care that I liked orca whales. In fact, I think if I stop mentioning it in a year, no one will care. Everything's Havel. Um, we need to notice, though, that this is not a throwaway line in Ecclesiastes. The Old Testament portrays a blessed memory as the hope and blessing, promise, comfort for God's people. Psalm, uh, Proverbs 10.7 says, The memory of a righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Psalm 112.6 says, A righteous man will be remembered forever. There are more verses we could do here. Just like he does with the created order and the rhythms of the natural world, now he does with um, legacy. He disagrees. That's a counterpoint in Scripture. It's a dissent voice. It's a protest voice. He says, no, no, it's, it's gone. He'll be forgotten about. Now, in verse 12, as we keep reading, he will give us a summary of the rest of the book, of the project that he goes after to be able to conclude that all is meaningless. He says, I, Coelette, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is, he says, an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Notice that, again, we have here God, and Coelette firmly places the blame at God's hands, right? This God did this. God created it. God gave this to us. The Hebrew word for unhappy here is actually a much stronger word. It's the Hebrew word ra, which is more often translated evil. One of the more negative words that we have in the, the Hebrew Bible. ESV is, is really soft playing us a little bit here with unhappy, although it might not have quite all the connotations of pure evil. But he's definitely not happy with this. What is this unhappy business, this bad business? It's the search for meaning, search for wisdom. He says, this is what God gave us, this tiresome, pointless search. He says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is havel, all is vanity, all is meaningless, it's a striving after the wind. He goes on, what's crooked can't be made straight, what's lacking can't be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience in wisdom and knowledge. I applied to my heart to know wisdom. And to know madness and folly, I perceive this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This also is pretty unique in the Old Testament. A wisdom book, this is part of the wisdom um, books of the, the Old Testament, that does not affirm the value of wisdom. The book of Proverbs is going to say, seek wisdom, get it first, get only wisdom. Whatever you do. It's the one thing you'll be able to count on. The one thing that will come through for you. 
The book of Job is a little bit of a protest to this. It's less like, okay, maybe not exactly how you described it. Maybe God's wisdom is higher than ours, but there's still wisdom there. Ecclesiastes, he says, I got all the wisdom. It's meaningless. It was tiresome. It was burdensome. The, the narrator in the book is going to tell us, don't even try. This is not a project you need to keep going on. He's done it. He had the resources to do it. He had all the kingly resources to go experience all he wanted to experience, to partake in all he wanted to partake in. And he's come back to us with his report, and the report is negative. I love that he talks about not only knowing wisdom, but also like madness and folly. Uh, I think what he's getting at here is like, look, I went both directions. I went highbrow, I went lowbrow. I went to the country club, I went to the NASCAR race. I drank Cristal, I drank other stuff. Both sides, I think, the more educated or, or, or more wealthy, and then the less educated and less wealthy, tend to sometimes think their solutions would be solved if they were on the other side. And I know for those of us who struggle with wealth or education that that seems a little unfair, how great a problem it would be to have problems of money. But there are legitimate things that come from that. There, there are many people who think how much simpler life would be I lived in an earlier time, if I didn't have to worry about overextending all this wealth, how much simpler would it be to just live out in the country, just grow my own crops, make everything myself? And the person out in the country is like, oh man, what I'd give for a grocery store and the money to go there. I'm only working these crops because I have to. What I would give for some education, how much I would do for me, what I would give for some money, some solid work, what that would do for me. He says, I I was on both sides. They both got perhaps legitimate points, but they all end up in the grave. And we all forget about them, don't care about them. All right, let's pray. Okay, no, we'll talk a little bit more, but this is really what Ecclesiastes is about. We'll end here for the morning, but it's meaningless. He says, Havel, 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 all of it is Havel. Everything is Havel. I think that most of you, some of us, most probably some of us don't believe Kohelet. There are things in our life that bring us meaning. There are things about our faith, probably hopefully, that give us meaning. Some of us, I think, though, might even refuse to entertain his thoughts, to entertain his conclusions, to think about... um, Ways that he might be right. Ways that he might have a solid point. Ways that that might disturb us a little bit. Maybe some of us are loving this already. Tomorrow the wife's going to be like, Hey, mow the lawn. You're going to be like, Vanity! (laughs) Woman, did you not listen to the pastor? Meaningless. I'm not going to work today either. Here's what I would say though. I think unless you and I are ready to honestly examine our lives, and the meaning there or lack of meaning there, we're resigned to doing nothing but staying on the treadmill. Unless we can take an unflinching, hard look, there's really no better option for us than what one pastor has called vapor management. Just arranging the vapor, rearranging the vapor, trying out the different vapors, but at the end of the day, it still all goes away. It's not there. 
What if Coalette is right? What if this is true? Like we said, the, the narrator at the end doesn't seem to, to contradict him. He'll add this saying. He'll, he'll tell his son, he's talking to his son, the words of the teacher, the preacher have been wise, but the whole of man's duty is to fear God and keep his commandments. So he places Colette's teachings in a broader, more common and orthodox wisdom teaching, right? Which is wisdom begins with fearing God and keeping his commandments. I interpret that ending as, as basically saying, look, he was right, but you should still keep going. He might be right. There's wisdom there. But you should still fear God. You should still keep his commandments. You should still take a step in front of the other. During a bout of depression, a wise person once told me, I think this comes from like a war quote, but the, the quote was this, if you're going through hell, keep going. Like the, 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 part, of, the part of the journey where you might think about quitting would be right before you get to hell. Right? I mean, that would be the point where, you're, like, if, you, if that was an option, you might be like, okay, I'll just call it at the top. If you've already found yourself there, you might as well see what's there the day after, or the month after, or the year after, and you just might find things change or get better, and things can be adjusted, things can be found. I think that, to a large extent, we are meant to wrestle with Koalette's message as a mostly truthful message. But we are not in Colette's position. There is more to our canon than the Old Testament. We are post-Easter folk. We are those who have already been crucified and risen in the crucified and risen one. And that changes the questions we ask. That changes the way we read. That changes the conclusions we'll inevitably draw from what we're hearing from Kohelet. He's hitting on something crucial. We read it in our scripture reading earlier in Romans 8. Paul says, All of creation has been subjected to futility. That word is the Greek translation of Havel. It says, God made everything Havel so that it could be recreated in hope, so that the redemption of our bodies might provide a solution, a salvation, a meaning. I think that. What would have changed everything for Coalette had he kept living, kept walking on? I think what would have changed things for Coalette, what would have perhaps moved him to some new thoughts, would have been the resurrection. And I would argue only the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. The promise that all of Jesus' people will one day be resurrected on a new creation to live eternally. I don't think just a naive faith and a pious attempt will ever be enough for Colette. I don't even think a more developed view of the afterlife would satisfy him, like a vague heaven. I think he'd still have major problems. Okay, say that there's more for us after this life. It doesn't change the fact that this life was meaningless. It might, again, further confirm my point. This was all Havel. None of it mattered, none of it I mean, really, none of it mattered. We're just going to go off to a, a different place here. I think it's resurrection that changes this. It's a resurrection that allows the plug to be pulled on the treadmill, that allows the cycle to be interrupted. And I think Ecclesiastes brings us some value here because it can be hard to appreciate the resurrection when we pretend that there's nothing wrong with the world the way it is. And there's nothing wrong still in our lives. 
as they are. And it can be hard to truly appreciate the resurrection when you pretend you're satisfied with your experience on earth. That there's nothing you need in the future. And I think that it's even, and most importantly, perhaps hard to have faith to live the Christian life if you are unwilling to sacrifice your experience on earth because of your hope in resurrection. I've talked about this before, but, but I think that what causes some Christians to be unable to fully sacrifice or serve in their lives is that they want to enjoy as much of creation as possible. They want to get the trinkets. They want to try it out. Even if it's the fleeting happiness. Yeah, I'll go for it. And I, I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a correct evaluation of the world. Some of these carpe diem passages, that's what he's going to say. If you've got some good food, some good drink, enjoy it. Eat and be merry and then die. But at least you're eating. At least you're happy. But we hold on to it so tightly, unable to get rid of it, because we think either there's nothing for us to come afterwards, or we think there's no more of this to come afterwards. And God created the world good. It's a, it's a right impulse to think this is good and should be enjoyed. And it's only those, I think, who, who believe that one day they'll be resurrected, one day they'll experience eternity on a new heaven and a new earth, experiencing creation without any of the vanity it's been subjected to. It's only those people who are freed to worship. It's only those people who are freed to be honest with themselves and with others and with God. It's only those people who are free to fear him and obey him. It's only those people who can, with a song of praise in their mouth, with thoughts of thankfulness, keep marching on through a life that often seems meaningless. I think Ecclesiastes is a necessary conversation partner to help us understand just what it is about the resurrection that's worth celebrating, that's worth holding on to, that's worth hoping for.